but my hope is that people will see that, yes, you know, I was upset and scared at the start of this when I first got the diagnosis. I was so ignorant to disability and the disability space. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of us are conditioned to think of disability as a lemon scenario, as a negative thing when it isn't. There just needs to be more awareness and support. But my hope is that by people seeing the journey I went through and how I've come out of it feeling I've done a 180, I feel entirely differently about raising a child with disability. I'm hoping that by people being able to see that evolution, that would be helpful. Because I think if I just went in there saying, this is honky door, I'm all fine, then parents at the start of this feeling shit, that's not very helpful to Mm -hmm. them. So yeah, my hope is that the journey will help parents see that, you know, it's okay to feel crap now, completely understandable and normal, but you will not feel like this forever. Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the cello on the other side. Let's get juicing. These are the kinds of questions Melanie Dimmitt asked herself when her six-month-old son Arlo was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Why has this happened to me? Will I ever stop comparing my child to typical children? How will my relationship survive? Will I be able to work again? Should I have another baby? And the big one, what will my future look like? It's also the internal dialogue that prompted her to reach out to other parents with children with disabilities. She wanted to hear from those with lived experience about how to navigate this new life and ultimately seek the reassurance she was craving that one day it will all be okay. But what Melanie learnt through these conversations combined with her own experience parenting her beautiful baby boy was that life was going to be better than okay. Her little family was about to embark on a life and a love better than she could have ever imagined. These interviews culminated in a book, Special, a beautifully uplifting, relatable and honest roadmap for other parents in the early stages of learning the ropes of raising a child with a disability. It's an incredible read and one that's changed the course for so many parents of children with all abilities. There is so much I learnt in this chat with Mel. I hope you feel just as enriched by it as I did. Here's Mel. Melanie, thank you so much for joining me on Lemonade. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope you're going all right over there in COVID central, you poor thing. It literally is. I just, I saw something um, yesterday and I actually was just saying to my sister how I don't appreciate Melbourne jokes (laughs) because I find it too upsetting. Um, And someone said, oh, Melbourne, the most livable city, coronavirus agrees. And I was like, oh, Oh, that's just me. Isn't it? Mm, So, yeah. Yeah, No, it is. That's not helpful. Mm. (laughs) But. Sydney looks beautiful and sunny and just I think everywhere just looks beautiful right now so (laughs) yeah it is pretty nice we've actually just moved out of Sydney so we're in Barrow now um we escaped the city yeah how far away is that excuse my ignorance oh no like I barely know where I am um (laughs) it's like an hour and 20 minutes good drive uh south of the southern highlands oh my god heavenly that would be beautiful 
It is beautiful. I never thought I'd be a country gal, but um, I must say it's nice to be surrounded by green and we can afford to rent a three better. So yep. both of our two children now have a roommate and there's lots of space for my son Arlo to get around in his frame. So um, we're very happy here. We're loving it. That's really funny, isn't it? Because I think I always envisioned, oh, I will always be a city girl. I'll never live anywhere else but city. But just lately, I think when you've got young children, there's, I was even saying to my mom yesterday, I'm like, I would love to have chickens in the backyard for Ollie. I would love to just have space and that country kind of you know, out of the city, relaxed lifestyle. It's funny how, I don't know. You just want to make <laughs> it a bit easier. Like why not just take the edge off if you yes. can? No <laughs> traffic. Definitely... Yeah, exactly. We've got our own driveway. That makes a huge difference. Like getting the kids in and out of the car. We're not like yep. on a street about to get smacked by oncoming traffic. We've got our own garage. Um, it's just simplified stuff I'm trying you know I'm still clinging to my city identity yes. but I need to like <laughs> let that go and accept that this is easier and that is good yeah and just being around nature so much more is just oh I can yes, yes. I'm good for your head you can feel mm-hmm. it yeah mm-hmm. yeah definitely now Mel with all my interviews I start them in the same way and that's asking my guests what their childhood childhood was like growing up what was it like for you well I grew up in Perth um, which is, I guess, relatively small city, but we were quite central, close to the sea, had a really nice childhood, went camping a lot, went to Rottnest and Margaret River. Oh, heaven. And, yeah. Oh. I just always say like I had a really, yeah, my parents did, did good. We had a good childhood. I, had a, um, I have a younger brother, Eamon. Um, yeah, and I sort of grew up really wanting to, yeah, move to a big city, have a big city life. I wanted to be an actor was hell bent on yeah being a famous actor and all that and wasn't actually any good at acting. <laughs> it sounds again. exactly like me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I can see myself in Hollywood and stuff, and then did acting classes and realized I'm really not very good. No, I'm actually pretty shit. But I man, did I try? Like I got rejected from Whopper VCA NIDA like maybe four or five oh, years. Wow. I studied acting at uni. Um, a course that would have me because I paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just have in your head, this is what it's like for actors. There's a lot of rejection. I'll get there eventually. (laughs) Yes. And you know what? It was damn good for me. I think it was really character building Mm. and it meant that I was, I I don't know, like I'm good at job interviews now, I think, because I'm so used (laughs) to doing these auditions. Uh, But yeah, kept getting knocked back, but studied acting um, at Curtin University in Perth and there was a lot of writing involved with that course as well. And I was always really good at the writing subjects, but just kind of ignored that fact. Uh, Moved to Melbourne when I was 21, still trying to be an actor, moved to London a couple of years after that, spent a few years there getting rejected from, you know, Oxford Rada, all the the British (laughs) drum schools, still trying um, sort of doing like retail jobs and uh, medical administration jobs and things like that as I went, having so much fun and seeing the world and making amazing friends along the way. Uh, then came back to Melbourne and sort of decided it might be time to give up on mm. the acting at that point. And I got a job at typesetting newspapers so uh typesetting newspapers typesetting tv guides for newspapers right. so literally going through and being like this program's at nine this program's at ten on oh my god I, 
that was that is still a job would you believe now I didn't even <laughs> yes okay of course yeah. someone has to write that <laughs> yes um, and started doing little like new release DVD reviews and things like that. And that's how I sort of got into writing. And from there just um, started freelancing with just, you know, find stories wherever I could. Like um, one of my friends was an artist, uh, is an artist in Melbourne and he painted a portrait of the then um, premiere who didn't buy the portrait because his wife said that his hands looked too small in it. And I'm like, that's a story. Wrote wow. The age printed it. I just kind of found stories wherever I could. And then, um, yeah, started writing for a magazine called Collective Hub, who said mm. there's a full-time job for you in Sydney if you want to move. So my partner, Rowan, and I moved to Sydney. I started that job and then we started having babies and yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. Then everything changed. Yeah, Sydney's yeah. a little, Sydney, Sydney is very much, well, it was, I guess so many jobs are going now, but the hub of magazine and feature writing yeah. as well. Did you feel like, okay, now I'm in Sydney, I've kind of made it? I get, yeah, there was a lot more opportunity and I guess there still kind of is, you know, my partner works at News Corp um, now and he edits newspapers and there's very much the sense that, yeah, we kind of need to stay here. We're, yeah, we love Melbourne and the plan was sort of to always go back there. But now that the world has changed. Yeah, so much, you don't want to be um, back here. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, but yeah, we're both able to work remotely now. You know, I'm freelancing again and Ro, yeah, does his job remotely. So we're very lucky. Um, but yeah, there was a sense, yeah, the whole magazine scene, it was different. I remember I rocked up to my first event at Bondi's Icebergs in my Melbourne. That's so comments. quintessential. Of course, there oh. was an event at Bondi Iceberg. Yeah. And I went there and like, oh, I had like my pink flowery dress and just stepped into the room and every single person there was in like bodycon, black, tight dress, blow wave, tan. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a completely different scene to what I'm used to. You adjust. I bought a black dress. Um, yeah. <laughs> I imagine you're still wearing it all the time, especially where you're living now. You're always oh, in body yeah, cons, totally. aren't you? Totally. You're looking at me here in my tracky pants and laughing at me. But yeah. I'm sure the body cons underneath though, <laughs> ready yeah. to bust out. And uh, Mel, did you know that you always wanted to be a mum? Was that always in the in No. The Gosh, no, not, never had much interest in kids or baby. like I come from a big family. My mum's one of 10. So there were always lots of cousins. I'm the oldest of like 40 cousins, but wow. never really had all that much interest in them. Um, I was always like, you know, if I meet the right person and if it's the right time, then maybe. And yeah, when I got together with Ro, it was very much, oh, I love you a lot. You know, it, it'd be cool if we made a baby. Let's see if this happens. But I was never kind of hell bent on being a parent and, you know, considering how things have turned out, I'm quite grateful that I didn't have, you know, very specific dreams and expectations around parenthood because my parenthood certainly doesn't look like those might have. Mm. It started off very normal. You've spoken about, you know, um, that when you're pregnant, it was just a very normal average pregnancy as well. Um, when did you notice that things, I guess, weren't, going to plan according to the plan rule guidebook yeah well right at the very last minute so we were four days past our due date um with Arlo and I was very pregnant very over it and noticed that his movements were a bit weird 
and they always tell you, you know, go into the hospital if, if the baby feels a bit different. So we went in, they checked him out and they said, oh, it looks fine. You know, you're cool to go home. Went home that afternoon of that day. I was like, nah, he still feels a bit strange. So we went back in again and they said, look, he's fine, but we'll keep you in overnight and keep checking on him. And if there's a bed available in the morning, we'll induce you. So I stayed overnight. They checked on Arlo. He was fine. They just kept checking his heart to make sure that was all good and it was fine. The next morning there was a bed available in the birthing suite. So went in there with Ro at 8 a.m. We were all connected up to the fetal heart monitor and we were just waiting for the action to start for them to induce me. And we were watching Arlo's heart monitor because we were bored. We were just sort of playing a game. We were like, yeah, as it fluctuated naturally, we were like, oh, yeah, high score. And then we were watching it and suddenly it just dropped to almost nothing. And we were like, oh, "Oh, that's a bit weird. So we got the nurse in and she got out her stethoscope and she was looking around my belly and then she couldn't find any heartbeat. So then everything happened very quickly. The emergency button was pressed all of these doctors flooded into the room and it was decided very quickly that this would be an emergency cesarean. So they wheeled my bed out, put me under general and they managed to get Arlo out in 10 minutes, which is incredible. So from pressing the button to him being out was 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Like these, yeah, were very good doctors. Um, And they, they don't know what happened. It was called a hypoxic incident. They couldn't figure out why um, his heart rate had dropped. He just lost oxygen um, for some reason. And this caused brain damage, uh, which, you know, we weren't to know straight away. You know, the first thing I knew was I was coming to and there was this beautiful little baby being placed on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, he's alive. We've done this. We're all good. Um, We spent a week in NICU. And, you know, Arlo was, he had to be in this incubator to stay cool for his first few days, which was hard. We couldn't hold him. But then after a few days we could, and he seemed to be doing really well. You know, he was the biggest baby in the NICU. Um, His limbs were a little bit stiff, but other than that, he was very alert, you know, happy baby feeding well. Um, But they did an MRI in that first week and it showed that he did have brain damage um, to the motor section of his brain. And they said to us, you'll just have to wait and see what that means. They said it could be nothing. Worst case scenario, it could be cerebral palsy. But I just let that wash straight over my head. I was like, like, I don't need to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no way. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then six months later, he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And what was going through your mind when the doctors gave you that diagnosis? Major denial, made like trying very hard to find a way out of this. Like I was, I said to the doctor, you know, oh, so is there any way that he'll get off scot-free still? And the doctor was like, well, no. And I mean, we, it was obvious then. I think we were very lucky that this was our first baby and I didn't have very much experience with babies because, you know, he didn't, he didn't meet any motor milestones. Like he never rolled. He never sat. Um, he still doesn't. We're still working on these things. But he's just such a bright, engaged, cheeky, beautiful kid. Like he was smiling and he just, he holds you with his eyes. And, you know, it was very easy to get lost in that and focus that focus on that. And we could kind of, you know, ignore the fact that he wasn't meeting these milestones and that he was very stiff and arching. But yeah, when it got to that six month point and we got the diagnosis, we knew that we couldn't ignore it anymore. And there was no denying 
this and it was absolutely terrifying because suddenly, you know, you think your kid's going to follow the blueprint and then that blueprint is just snatched away from you and you have absolutely no idea what your or their future is going to look like. How long did it take you to come to terms with it? I was really, really sad and down for a few months, like just felt absolutely wretched. Um, Then I started researching for my book. So I started interviewing other parents raising kids with disabilities who were a bit further along and, you know, asking them like, just help me. What did you do to feel better? I feel like rubbish. I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to feel this way about my son. Please help me. What did you do? How do you feel now with hindsight? And once I started talking to these parents who were all saying to me, it's so fine, the first bit shit, but you will feel fine. Your son will be fine. You know, this isn't what you think it is. I feel like that really fast tracked me Mm. to acceptance. So I guess, you know, once Arlo turned one, I was feeling more myself again. But, you know, saying that there are still days now when, you know, I have a rough patch, but I bounce back so much quicker than I used to. Mm. Um, And yeah, most of the time I just feel tired, but that's normal for a parent. Um, yeah, just normal. Like life feels really ordinary for us and we have two happy kids and we're a happy family. Um, but, you know, certainly at the time of receiving diagnosis and being faced with the prospect of, you know, my son not walking or talking was terrifying. And I could never have imagined how I could have coped with that or how we could be happy in that scenario. We just, yeah, we were discussing this before we started the podcast is that, you know, even, you know, you've written so beautifully that you wouldn't change a thing and your life and he's the most beautiful, beautiful little boy. But whenever we have an image of what our life is going to look like, and then that radically changes, no matter, you know, even if we then find that the new way is just as magical and beautiful, it comes with a sense of grief. How was that for you and your partner? Yeah, it's hard. And even that word grief, I hated that word when people said it around me because I'm like, my son's not dead. Like, how dare you? Um, And I do think we need a better word than that. But it is a kind of grief because you're grieving the hopes and expectations. You know, I didn't even have that many hopes or expectations around parenthood, like we were saying, but I did expect it to look like it does in the nappy ad. Like I did, you know, expect it to be a certain way like we're sold this very specific image of what parenthood looks like um so you know we were grieving those expectations and you know as much as yet I absolutely wouldn't change Arlo for the world I would change the world for him you know there's a lot of change that does need to happen there are a lot of barriers that still exist for um, people with disabilities and you know the fact that Arlo gets a lot more sick than his able-bodied peers. And we've spent most of last year in hospital with him with like terrible chest infections and pneumonia. That's undeniably shit. Like there's no kind of happy sunshine around that. Um, So yeah, but certainly at the start, we did go through that process. There was a lot of denial, like dogged denial for me for a long time. And then, you know, you go through your, your anger and your bargaining and it does, it goes through that cycle. But yeah, like I was saying, I just think connecting with other parents Mm. and seeing that this wasn't what 
I thought it was and getting that reassurance just really got me to acceptance and Arlo growing into himself as well and realizing that this is Arlo, you know, no matter what happens, we get to go through this with him and he's got this and, you know, we're good. So that really helped too. You wrote that people who appear to get the dream scenario aren't actually living the dream. No one is. The early days of parenthood are seasoned, if not soaked with dissatisfaction. And my God, it just, and even now it just makes me, I don't know, it just, it hits me that sentence. It's so beautifully profound. Whether you're a child, the parent of a child with disabilities or not, I think every one of us can relate to those words. How dangerous is that comparison game for any of us to be playing? Yeah. Oh God, those words sound so negative. It's funny now. I can't stand to read my own book because I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm okay be- now. No, it's, it's, it's beautiful because it, yeah, I think it sums oh, up beautifully no matter what anyway. your situation is. <laughs> Not all doom and gloom. But yeah, I think, you know, we, I'm speaking to my friends who've had, you know, on paper, the dream scenario, you know, I've had friends that have suffered terribly with postnatal depression and, not bonding with their kid or having other struggles that, you know, you just, you don't see that in yeah the beautiful nappy ads and stuff mm. like that. And I think, yeah, comparison is something that we battle with anyway, like across all departments of life, like relationships, career, body image. Um, but it truly does suck, you know, as a parent in this scenario, when your child doesn't even start in the same playing field as, you know, typically, developing kids and I still have moments now when I'm you know in a playground and I see other kids doing like acrobatics on the monkey bars and I'm just like looking at Arlo and his pram I'm like it's really unfair um but you know he's really got his own stuff going on and his own passions you know and he's such a happy kid so that helps I've also discovered there are some things I can tell myself in those scenarios um some strategies I picked up from parents I interviewed for my book, uh, my friend Janie, who's got a beautiful little boy with Down syndrome, you know, said to me, well, we never really wanted a typical family anyway. Like we never wanted to be average stock standard. So sometimes when she looks at, you know, those kids on the monkey bars and typical families, she'll just think, oh, how boring. <laughs> I love that. I'm like, yeah, that is boring. We've got a lot more interesting stuff going on here. But I just think, you know, I try and remember when I'm looking at these, you know, air quotes, perfect families that, and it sounds awful to wish misery on people, which I'm not, but I just know that no one is happy all the time. That's not life. Like we've all got challenges, whether they are, you know, obvious challenges, to the eye or not like no one is skipping around all day sunshine and joy we've all got stuff going on I think that's why that yeah that sentence that you wrote is so profoundly touching because it's true everyone has you can look and people can look like they're having this perfect life and it's so easy to compare ourselves to them but everyone is going through something behind closed doors sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes it's not so I think that, yeah, that, I think that's why it really touched me that you know, your writing is so beautiful like that. So you've said that you um, reaching out to other parents, starting to write this book helped to shift your mindset. Why, what, did you, what did you set out to achieve when you began writing it? I know it helped your mindset, but was there, was there a broader purpose at that point or was it just like, I'm just going to do this to try and see what's out there? 
it changed as I went along. At the start, there wasn't even a book. I was just pretending. I just wanted an excuse to talk to other parents in a really one-sided style of an interview. I wasn't ready to go to the special needs parenting support groups. I wasn't ready to identify as that kind of parent. I couldn't even say the word to say disabled about my son. I was so scared. And so this was like an excuse where I'm like, I can just tell parents I'm writing a book and then I can ask some questions and hopefully get what I need from them. And I was just so desperate for them to say, you know, this is all great and your son will definitely walk and he'll definitely talk. And this, you know, I didn't, I didn't get that, but I got, you know, a lot more of an idea of what this could look like than I was going to get if I Googled Arlo's diagnosis of quadriplegic cerebral palsy. You know, I got the full picture. I got the full family experience. Um, and I could just hear, you know, these people sounded happy and I could hear the commotion of, you know, domestic life in the background or whatever. And I'm like this, yeah, these are lives that are happening and people that are happy. Um, and it, but yeah, my intention, you know, once I decided to make it a book, even with like the title, I called it special at the start because I wanted to reclaim that word and be like, yes, our kids are special. They're better than all other kids. What we've got going on is amazing here. And then as I was writing it and researching it and talking to these parents, I was like, actually, no, like our kids aren't special. They're not any more special or unspecial than any other kid. They're just kids who happen to have different needs, but kids all the same. What is special and why I kept that title is the experience that we have as parents, the way our kids blow our minds, change our perspective on the world, teach us, you know, about this whole disability space that I personally knew so little about. Mm. Um, that's special. So, yeah, I re- my intention for the book changed a lot and evolved a lot as I was writing it. When did you realise it was starting to take the shape of, I guess, the roadmap that you said you never had? Yeah. I mean, we still don't even really have a roadmap. I think it was more that I got comfortable with not knowing and I can kind of, you know, parents would give me strategies. They'd say, stay in the moment, stay in the moment, try very hard not to disappear into some imagined future. And I'm able to do that because, you know, we've found an amazing team for Arlo. He is a physio, OT, speech therapist, feeding specialist, pediatrician, neurologist. And because we've put this incredible team around him who will tell us if we need to do something and guide us wherever we need to go, we can sort of just take a step back and enjoy Mm. Arlo and the moment and what we're doing now and just trust that we'll be led in the right direction. And Arlo shows us what he needs and what he wants to do and what he's up to as well. So I think rather than being shown, because, you know, no one can show you what the future of your kid is going to, not, not typical kids, nothing. No one has any idea. But I think it was just learning to become more comfortable with those unknowns and become more comfortable living in the moment that helped. What are some of the main, when you're writing the book, what are some of the main things that you can reflect on now that you got out of learning from other families? Yeah, one of the biggest turning points for me um, was chatting to this incredible woman who lives in Tel Aviv. Her name's Debbie Elnaton, and she's an inventor. She's got a son with cerebral palsy, similar to Arlo, but he's quite a bit older. And she invented this amazing contraption called the Uxy, which allows you to strap your kid onto your own legs and you can walk around with them and they get the experience of walking. 
So anyway, I was talking to her about walking and I was telling her, you know, how determined I was at that point that Arlo would walk. He would walk at all costs. There would be no wheelchairs in our future. And Debbie sort of said to me, well, you know, when they talk to adults living with disability and they ask them, you know, about their lives and what makes them happy, it's not about walking or any physical function. It's about their social circle, their connection to people, their relationships. So like that's more important to them. And she said to me, you know, if you spend Arlo's entire childhood with him propped up against the couch or, you know, forcing him to walk around and he doesn't get any, you know, experience socially, you know, he's maybe not going to be a very nice person. <laughs> and my son, you know, he's going to need to ask for help in his life. And if he's an asshole, who's going to want to help him? So that really shifted my focus. And I was like, yeah, it's not about, it's not all about the walking. You know, we still do his therapies. We absolutely keep him up and keep his bones developing as best we can. Um, and he walks unaided in a gait trainer frame, which is amazing. But that is not our focus. You know, he's going to be a lot more comfortable and able to get around in a wheelchair. Um, but because, you know, we've shifted the focus and we put him in daycare and he's got 20 little friends now and he's got a sister who he plays with as well. We're hoping, you know, that his social skills will develop and that he'll be a nice person with a great sense of humor because I just realized how much more important that is, you know, being able to walk and talk does not equal happiness, but having meaningful relationships and connection and community that does. So yeah, I think that was probably one of the most pivotal interviews for me and biggest mind shifts for me. Absolutely. Wow. Just before we keep going, I would, would you be able to, for people that don't know, and I should have asked this earlier, what exactly is cerebral palsy? Oh gosh. And yeah, I'm not even the best person. (laughs) It's a really broad thing that covers a whole range of movement disorders. And I don't know that much about it. I know Arlo very well. Um, and in his case, he's quad. So it affects his whole body and he's quite severe. He's level five on the scale. They have GMFC of one to five. Um, so for Arlo, this means he's non-mobile. So he's not able to yeah, roll, sit, stand, walk without some help from us. What I guess I didn't realize at the time um, is that this also would affect his speech and eating because we use, you know, muscles in mm. our face and our tongue. So this also means that he's technically nonverbal. I'd say he's very verbal, but he doesn't have words um, as yet. We're working on that. Um, but he's a bright kid. And even if he does get some words, they won't be able to keep up with his thoughts. So we've now got him talking using an eye gaze device, which is a tablet that sits in front of him. And it follows his pupils. His pupils are like the mouse. So he makes selections and this is how he is talking to us and being a really cheeky little bugger to us (laughs) with the words he has available to him on there. Like he loves saying yuck. And, you know, he'll look at me and look at it and go, eat bolognese, mama. Like he's a cheeky bugger with it. So (laughs) cute. (laughs) Yeah. So this is how he will hopefully communicate and he'll take this through school and, yeah, so I guess for Arlo, that's what cerebral palsy look like, looks like. But some people can have it in one finger. You know, there's a very broad right. spectrum. Yeah. And it's acquired, isn't it? It, it came from the lack of oxygen. Yeah. Is that in right? In Arlo's case, yeah, it was from the brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. 
How much would a book like Special have helped you when you were just starting out, when you just got, when you and your partner just got told this diagnosis, if someone could have handed you a book like that to let you know that it was all going to be okay, how much would that have helped you? I think a lot, which was a lot of the reason I decided I desperately had to write it. I guess it depends on the kind of person you are. I've spoken to other parents who are ready right away to meet other parents and families um, raising kids with disabilities. I was not ready for that for ages. I just wanted to hide away in a hole and read inspiring quotes. And I guess because words are my thing. Um, I just wanted words to cling to that would make me feel better. And I didn't want to read memoirs at that point because I didn't want to read someone's entire sob story I was so wrapped up in my own I just wanted the helpful bits at the end where they felt better the lessons the takeaways the strategies Mm. I just wanted those bits um so that's I couldn't find a book like that um so that's why I felt the need to put this one together yeah so I think special would have helped me a lot I mean the process of researching and writing it helped me enormously and I've been so lucky in getting some amazing feedback from parents saying that like yes you put words to what I'm feeling so I'm stoked that parents are getting even a a smidge of what I got out of it out of this book. This podcast is all about that is about turning something that seemed very difficult or some kind of adversity initially into an opportunity to not only help yourself but maybe even help other people around you. Is it really rewarding to know that you've kind of gone through this and you guys are kind of, you know, you guys are, you and Arlo are pioneering the way for so many families to know that were you guys once upon a time to know that it's all going to be okay and look at this beautiful, whole, fulfilled life that you can and will have. How does that feel? I don't know that we're pioneers necessarily. And it's tricky. Like we were talking about before, you know, I've received a little bit of backlash from disability activists who, you know, understandably are upset by parents in my scenario saying that they feel extremely negatively about their child's diagnosis. Um, But my hope is that people will see that, yes, you know, I was upset and scared at the start of this when I first got the diagnosis. I was so ignorant to disability and the disability space. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of us are conditioned to think of disability as a lemon scenario, as a negative thing when it isn't. There just needs to be more awareness and support. But my hope is that by people seeing the journey I went through and how I've come out of it feeling I've done a 180, I feel entirely differently about raising a child with disability. I'm hoping that by people being able to see that evolution, that would be helpful. Cause I think if I just went in there saying this is honky door, I'm all fine. Then parents at the start of this feeling shit, that's not very helpful to mm-hmm. them. So yeah, my hope is that the journey will help parents see that, you know, it's okay to feel crap now, completely understandable and normal, but you will not feel like this forever. Because how is, what is life like? What's life like in your household? Busy, very busy. Like, I mean, yeah, we're happy, but my gosh, we've got a lot on. Um, yeah, you know, we were saying earlier, one kid is hard enough. We've got two. Um, Arlo has daily appointments. I mean, life has become more simple since COVID. We now do most of his appointments via telehealth. So Ro and I have become, you know, amateur physios, OT, speech therapists <laughs> ourselves, just doing 
our appointments um, via the laptop. But yeah, he has appointments most days. Uh, Ro and I both work pretty much full time. I tend wow. to write in the mornings. He edits in the afternoons and then we just swap in the middle of the day. So most of the time we're either working or solo parenting two kids. So it's full on, Mm. but I mean, man, does it feel ordinary? You know, we're living, it must look quite extraordinary to people, you know, our lives and our house full of all this kit and equipment for Arlo, but it just feels so ordinary and so normal. And, you know, a lot of the time we're having a lot of fun, you know, Mm. That's a really important takeaway. I think what you just said um, is that no matter what, you always adjust to this new normal. It becomes your your normal way of life. And all of a sudden you don't even realize that it was never not like that. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I would hear parents saying, well, you adjust to this new normal. And I was like, fuck that. That's such a consolation prize. It, it doesn't feel like that. We haven't settled mm, or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if anything, you know, the experience of parenting a child with disability has really enriched my life, certainly. And I, I don't know, like the, my work has changed. You know, I'm doing a lot of work um, with this incredible company called Hire Up and they're a disability support company. And it's just, I love that work and it feels meaningful and it feels like, you know, that company is making real change. And I guess I feel really fulfilled. And I think, you know, it's, this scenario has made me probably a better parent than I would have been. I was very much like, I'm going back to work. Kids are going to daycare. Like that's it. And I mean, that's fine. That's what I wanted. But, you know, Arlo having a disability forced me to be a hell of a lot more present in his childhood than I think I would have been. And, you know, I've gotten to know him much more than I probably would have. So I think this has been good for me. Mm. I'm really curious about that. The kind of real, the way that, and for lack of a better word, journey, the way that this journey has changed you as a person or changed your perspective about life. What are the main lessons that you've got from this journey? Oh, disability is not a bad thing. Um, That is a big one for me. I just thought, you know, if my child can't walk and talk, what's the point? You know, he'll just struggle and have an awful life and we'll have an awful life with him. So not true. My gosh. Um, And we need to do a lot of work to make that point, drive that point home to other families. Um, I guess I also care a lot less about stuff I used to fret about. Um, I don't sweat the small stuff as much, which is really nice. I'm a hell of a lot more efficient than I was. I used to sort of drag out articles and spend my time playing with sentences and take weeks. And we, and now I'm just like banging out my work. Cause you know, you get, you know what it's like, you get an hour, you use the hour. <laughs> sort of yep. thing. So it's made me a lot better at working. Um, yeah. I've just grown up a lot. I think through this experience. It's funny how we think that we're the ones teaching our kids and guiding them through life, but really it's the other way around. <laughs> It so is. Like, always taught me more. And just the people he meets, you know, you see it when we put him in daycare, his educators had ideas about what it would be like, you know, a child with severe disability is starting here and they were scared and then they meet him and they're like, oh, he's just like any other kid. Like, this is a cool kid. And you just see Arlo just changing perspectives all around us and it's awesome um yeah he's taught me so much about life and the world and I'm so grateful for that that must be yeah that must be incredible for the children that attend daycare 
with him and their parents and changing that from that yeah. really grassroots level of just showing people just different ways of living life, but it's all Absolutely. can come look, together. Kids, kids don't care. That's no, the they don't. Of kids. It's only when, yeah, we get all these ideas as we grow older and stuff. And I'm like, we can learn a hell of a lot from these kids in the daycare. Yeah. They're just like, that's all And they come and read books with him. And yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from kids in that way. Absolutely. And there's so much emphasis around language when it comes to talking about children with disabilities. Do you feel that people are almost too afraid to say the wrong thing so that they say nothing at all? What would you, what would you prefer? Yeah. And that would have 100% been me. I still feel awkward, you know, and really self-conscious, you know, speaking to adults with disability and it's, it's hard. And I mean, the language and the so-called rules around the mm. language are changing all the time. Like when I wrote special, I, you know, I've used the term special needs in there a bit. And now I don't use that term anymore because I've learned that people living with disabilities see that as a euphemism and like you're tiptoeing around what their disability is. And so it's changing the whole time. I just think we all need to be a bit understanding and a bit patient with one another there. I mean, it's like, you know, I've got friends that will say, oh, that's retarded. And I used to say that all the time as well. And it's just, you know, being brave enough to kind of pause the conversation and say, look, that's not really cool to say that and have that bit of an awkward interaction. Um, But yeah, I just think, you know, we need to have the conversations. That's so much better. Even if you say the wrong thing, you know, it can be a learning experience for both parties and that's a lot better than remaining silent. Absolutely. And with that being said, what are the best, what's the best and the worst things that someone could say to you? I think it's like the attitude they take, you know, to Arlo. Um, and it's, it's not even what you say. Sometimes it's how it's said. Like Janie, my friend who's got the son with Down syndrome, she's got two other kids and she'd say, you know, someone might say to her, oh, how's this kid? And then when they talk about Dare, her son with Down syndrome, they say, oh, how's Dare? Mm. And it's just a different tone that it sets. So I just think being really careful to keep that, tone consistent regardless and it can be hard you know when you don't have a a script to follow another mum was telling me you know with typically developing children there's a script to follow are they smiling yet are they talking yet are they walking yet and with our kids you don't necessarily have that so I think it's just asking more general questions like you know how are they how are you what is your kid getting up to what do they love what do they like um and just keeping that banter going, asking questions, checking in, not going silent. That's, that's what we need. There's so much focus on how a diagnosis can upend our lives, but, and you're so incredible at this. It's also so important to focus on the incredible ways it's changed lives. And, and you've mentioned, and you've touched on this. What's the best thing about mothering Arlo and mothering your daughter, Odie, who is typically developing what's the best best bit about that combination of being a mother it's so interesting because I get to watch two you know quite different paths of parenting and you know two quite different kids but then there's a lot of similarity as well a lot of crossover but it's funny like when we had Odie I you know the night before she was born 
um, I got really, really sad. I was like sobbing for Arlo was trying to sleep and I kept going in and grabbing him out of his cot and hugging him and just saying like, I'm so sorry if you, if even a small part of you thinks that we're having another kid because we, we want a typical experience. And, you know, I was really worried that I was, it was going to be so sad to watch Odie meet these milestones and overtake her brother in, you know, the motor department, but it hasn't been, it's just been really interesting to see the different parts. And I guess seeing Odie develop has developed has helped us understand why we're doing certain exercises with Arlo that we Mm. do. And yeah, it's just been fascinating to watch the two different stories unravel and, you know, watch them each get their own passions and things that they like. Yeah. It's been really interesting. And what's the one thing you think that you would like parents of typically developing children to know? that this is as normal and feels as normal as what you've got going on there. And there's nothing to be afraid of. And, you know, my, my kid is, is cool and he's keen to hang out with your kid and that, you know, they can have a lot of fun together. Um, yeah. Just that this isn't what you think it is. You most certainly do not need to feel sorry for us. Yeah. We're happy. We're good. You know, we, appreciate support when we're going through hard times. If I was in hospital, feel free to put a pie on my doorstep. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Like we're good. And there's no need to be walking on eggshells around us. You said the best thing parents with disabilities can do is stay the hell away from the future and just soak up the present. Why is this? I would say that to all parents. I just feel like it's completely pointless to worry about what might or might not happen in the future because, you know, I thought having a child with profound disability was the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to me and ever happen to my child. Um, And, you know, it happens. Sometimes these things happen. These things that happen to other people will sometimes happen to us. But I've learned that this is not a nightmare scenario. It's so far from it. This is not the worst thing in the world this is a life and this is a a good life and my son is happy. So what's the point in worrying about these things if you don't know if they're going to happen or not and you certainly don't know how you're going to feel about them if they do happen? Um, We are not living in the future. We are living now and I think you miss so much good stuff if you're constantly worrying about the future and not just being with your kid, enjoying them in the moments. Yeah, I just think that's a good way for all of us to be thinking and living. So it's taught you, this experience has taught you mindfulness and keeping it present. It has. And I hate, like, I'm so not all about the <laughs> mindfulness thing, but that's what it is. But it's not glamorous. I'm not there on my meditation app or anything. It's literally yeah. <laughs> just like trying to keep, and I'm, you know, I'm, I struggle not to think about work and be mentally in other places. But yeah, Arlo has really helped me stay in the moment and he you know we have to be quite present with him you know Mm. we food feed him all of his meals we need to be quite hands-on with him and that's been good because it keeps you it glued in the moment I'm getting Mm. to enjoy my kid I'm not off wondering about something else the whole time absolutely and Melanie I finish all my interviews in the same way as well as the same question I start them with and that's what what advice would the Melanie sitting here in front of me right now tell the Melanie in her darkest, the moment when you felt the most down and you felt the most despondent, what would you tell her now? It will be okay. This is not what you think 
it's going to be. You will be happy. Your son will be happy. But it's also totally fine to feel like total shit right now. Don't beat yourself up about that. This is a challenging situation and you're scared and that's fine. But yeah, this will be good. This will teach you so much. You're going to meet incredible people who will just completely blow your mind. And yeah, your son is, is and is going to be this wonderful, happy, bright child. Yeah, you will be okay is the main message and all that. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And your book special is so beautiful and every parent should read it, not just parents with disabilities. I think some people with typically developed developing children can learn so much from it as well. And it's just, you know, it opens your eyes to just broader life perspective as well. So thank you for thank writing you. it and thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for reading it and for, you know, taking such an interest in, in my parenthood experience and for sharing it with your beautiful community. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lemonade. If you'd like to follow Melanie and check out Special, I've popped the links in the show notes. As always, you can connect with me at Elizabeth O'Neill. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you could leave a review and hit five stars and subscribe. This helps boost Lemonade in the rankings and will hopefully mean more people will find this content who perhaps really need it. Thanks again and stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.